Good afternoon, everyone. This is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with another excellent guest today, Ashley. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Sure. So my name is Ashley McCormick. I'm a senior here at Kent State majoring in English, and I've been working to transcribe some classified documents of Anna Freud's. Now, what does that look like in your day-to-day routine working with these documents? So when I first get a document, I make sure to look at the year. Most of the times, this would be in the top right corner. Sometimes with the location where this letter was either typewritten or written by hand, and then I will label that. And then after that, I will have a dual screen setup where I have the letter on the one side and a Google document on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then I will begin to go line by line and basically type what I see. Awesome. This is your first experience with research, right? Correct. What was it like jumping into that process? Very intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) I was given a Google Drive. I wasn't told how many letters. And all of a sudden, I see hundreds of documents in there (laughs) that I have to go through. And they aren't all necessarily by Anna Freud. We have some from some of her closest colleagues as well. So it was daunting, but I knew I had to just jump in and get started. Yeah. I can completely relate to that, having my first experience with research as well. And you get kind of an imposter syndrome at first because you're doing research as an undergrad student, and a lot of this work can be overwhelming at first. What's been some of the coolest stuff you've learned from this research? I'd say probably the coolest thing is just seeing how human Anna Freud is. For those of you listening, you might be familiar a bit with the last name Freud. Mm -hmm. She is the last daughter of Sigmund Freud, who came up with psychoanalysis. If you've heard anything about penis envy, that's the guy. (laughs) That's Sigmund Freud. (laughs) I know, I know everybody's heard of it, so I'm just going to put that out there right now. But I think that's something I've always wondered from a very young age is when you're a historical figure, do you even realize the weight you carry when you walk in public, when you speak in public? And in fact, Anna Freud wasn't really fond of news reporters um, coming up to her and stuff like that when she visited the States. And so it's interesting just to see these documents. And while there is stuff about her work, there's also a lot of personal things in there too. A complaint about the weather. Mm-hmm. You said that a lot of people weren't fond of her. She wasn't really fond of news reporters trying to get any information out of her, and especially photos as well. Yeah. She there were only a few photographs taken of her in her lifetime that she actually enjoyed <laughs> looking at, <laughs> um, and that was it. She wasn't. Yeah. You were talking about. I mean, say Sigmund Freud was one of the, the. He founded psychoanalysis, right? Yeah, he was. He was the. I guess you could say main founder of it, though there were also many others in his time that contributed as well. Mm -hmm. When he first started off with it, he created the Wednesday Society where he and a few other of his colleagues would basically talk about these ideas and solidify them a bit more. And sometimes he would take his colleagues' ideas and not really, you know, give them credit, but would would formulate that into his own work as well. Mm -hmm. I I heard he was like a little bit selfish with his theories in a way. Yes, He, he wanted recognition for sure. But I, I truly think psychoanalysis was a creation of its time. It was created in a time where a lot of people were now on board with the idea of sexuality. So the mm-hmm. penis envy thing back in the day wasn't really something very surprising. Yeah. Um, and he had enough people that were on board with this sort of blend between a science and a pseudoscience. Because how can you measure someone's ego? You really can't. Right. And how, how do we measure helping somebody through talking with them? We can't, but we know it sort of works. So how can we 
measure this? How can we solidify it so that it can compete with these other sciences that are backed up by numbers? Mm-hmm. So, What's like a, the, about the time period between Sigmund Freud's work and Anna Freud's work, do you think? My guess would be around 40 years. She 40 started years. in psychoanalysis herself while Freud was still alive. Yeah. Um, she did give him a copy of one of her works for one of his later birthdays. I remember that much. And they talked about it a bit. And mm-hmm. she was quite upfront with him when she disagreed with him. She was blunt with him. Yeah. She didn't really agree with the death drive. What's the death the, the death drive theory? Yeah. Um, as far as I can remember, it's basically that you're motivated by death to like do repetitive actions. Mm-hmm. So it was very out there for sure. And some of his theories are still out there to us today. And they don't make sense. And we look at them and the Venus envy, I don't yeah. really know. You know what I mean? That, that seems pretty far out. But yeah, she talked about the the work with um, them. And she also listened to the Wednesday Society meetings at some point, too, when she was young. Mm-hmm. So from a young age, she sort of knew a little bit about psychoanalysis and sort of saw what her father went through a bit. Like you said, a lot of Sigmund Freud's theories were really out there. Were a lot of Anna Freud's theories out there? Or what, do we still use like a lot of her theories today? I haven't seen many of her theories in the work that I've been doing with just working with the documents. However, she did come up with the defense mechanism. So if you've ever heard, hey, you're being defensive, it sort of does stem from this a little bit. Yeah, I've heard so, of that. So, yeah. So she came up with those, which are what we use to like shield our ego from when somebody's attacking us, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Mm-hmm. So one of those could be like maybe gaslighting, you know yeah. what I mean? Like oh, no, you you didn't, I didn't do that, you did that. So just sort of... Trying to trick the other person yes. into thinking that they... Yeah, but Anna Freud did a lot of work with children, mm-hmm. um, primarily with the Hampstead War Nurseries, which was created a little bit after World War II, taking in children from that time and going through them day to day and taking notes on index cards about their height, weight, things like that, but also how they were doing and... Like you said, mentioning the weather. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps some of that too, but it really gave children that were displaced by the war or that had very busy parents a place very similar to a school or a daycare where they could be with other children and socialize. And one of the things that my mentor wants to see from these documents, if possible, is how we can sort of use that experience of helping children dealing with isolation or displacement now yeah um after covid of course there are children that are still in this situation although it wasn't caused by war it was caused by a pandemic right yeah no that that's great that from studying stuff like that back back then after the war you're figuring out a way that it can help people and children now uh what, what are some of those ways from what you've like learned in your work so far the biggest way i think would just be to watch and listen uh back in the day you know They didn't think that children and adults were all that different, but of course, when kids are really young, they can't communicate on the same level as adults. And there's a thing called play therapy where kids can play with toys and we can sort of see how they interact with those toys and what maybe they're the actions that they're doing with these toys or what they're having these toys say. And we can try to see, okay, is that a reflection of something that's going on at home mm-hmm. or how they're they're feeling, but they just, they don't know how to express that in terms of themselves yet. Yeah. And so, and, and kids are smarter sometimes than we give them credit for. And so sometimes we just need to listen and cast aside the idea that they're younger than us and they can't have the same mental capacity because sometimes they do and they need just as much 
help as adults do. Right. And it's just that, that they're just still developing. I mean, yeah, kids are a lot smarter than we think they are. Yeah. And I mean, they're not able to really express it, you know, because yeah, because they're still developing. For sure. And mm-hmm. especially children today, they have access to social media, which has definitely made an impact on mental health. They didn't have to deal with that back in like 1950. They just didn't. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge, a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, having these virtual learning environments, that's an entirely new thing that could be causing some negative impacts on how they perform in society, how they communicate. They might not be developing those skills the same way because they're not in a group of children their age. They're not playing with other children, talking to other children. And of course, this can depend on family structure as well, whether they're an only child or they have siblings. And we might not see these effects until they've grown up and it's the new generation that's grown up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, de- I definitely. And even grown people have had a hard time being placed back into social settings after isolation because they were so used to, you know, communicating online and they weren't surrounded by, you know, large groups of people during the pandemic. Right. It, it definitely takes an impact. And once you're into that mode, it's very hard to break out of it. And at least when you're an adult, you remember, oh, how it was back in the day. Yeah. These kids don't have that. Right. So that's what they're starting off with. They might be taking that as their normal and making core memories out of it when it was an unfortunate normal for them. They shouldn't have had to go through that, but they did. Yeah. And so now it's seeing how can we help them to be the best versions they can be. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, what, what are some ways that we can help them be the best versions that they can be after going through that kind of isolation period? I think it's getting them with kids their age mm-hmm. and just talking, learning, experiencing, being in a group. It's yeah. hard to pick up on social cues and social interactions when you haven't been doing them for the past year, year and a half, mm-hmm. <laughs> a decade maybe. Yeah. It- um, it, but, it doesn't yeah. seem like a lot that li- like long of a time period, like overall, considering like someone's growth. But uh, like a year is uh, makes a huge impact. Like a year, a year in itself makes a huge impact. Yeah, especially when kids are developing, mm-hmm. for sure. Now, if we were to go through some other type of like lockdown again, or any type of isolation period, or a child had some sort of medical condition where they couldn't be placed in a social environment or outdoor environment for a period of time, what are some ways that we can kind of give them that same, you know, developmental opportunity with social interactions? My first thought is video games. Mm-hmm. Those helped me a lot as a child as well. I was an only child growing up. I was too. Yeah. <laughs> video games did help. <laughs> and, and seeing those social interactions and dialogue, mm-hmm. I think prepared me a bit more for going to school every day than my parents give credit for. Yeah. If they need something a bit more physical, I would say toys, depending on if their parents know other parents, maybe setting up like a virtual play date would help too. A lot of people say like video games are like a problem for a lot of the reasons why children don't want to go out and socially interact. But in a lot of games, it's pretty much simulates like the same situation. When I would play Minecraft and go on Xbox Live, we would have the headsets and the mic on. You know, you have the same conversation and dialogue and you can't see the other person physically, but they're controlling their avatar and you're controlling your avatar. So in a sense, it still kind of gives that like physical interaction in a way. Right. Um, I'm a Nintendo person myself. Yeah. <laughs> especially with Animal Crossing, visiting a friend's village was always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, especially in games like that too, where you're on a team of with other people. So you need to learn how to work together to get to your goal. Yeah. 
it still goes into that idea of like you know using your imagination as a kid uh, yeah. it just makes it more visual in mm. a way so you're an english major right yes how would you categorize your research that you're doing right now interdisciplinary is the first word that comes to mind because whenever i pitch my research to anybody the first the first thing they say is oh that very that very sad dejected oh because it's such a niche thing sometimes they'll take a guess at my major psychology no history no <laughs> it's english um so yes very interdisciplinary interdisciplinary research is awesome because it helps you get so many different perspectives and getting perspectives of different fields it really changes it gives you a unique mindset of how you deal with your own work and stuff and especially when you get someone coming from a different background to work on a, a, a project in say like a different field that per different perspective helps you know benefit that project in different ways that other people couldn't do so how has doing interdisciplinary work helped change your perspective of what you're doing right now in terms of your studies? It's made me appreciate books a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going through these handwritten documents, it's um, it's hard, especially when you have to get used to their handwriting. I've had to read one letter multiple times just to get the idea of what they're talking about. Yeah, And then it's going through, and if there's a word I don't know, let me leave a mark and come back and look at it later there was for a while actually where i couldn't make out one letter and i kept seeing it repeated a lot and i was mm-hmm. like that's weird it has to be something right and then one day it just hit me that's a t <laughs> but it did it did not look like a t what it look like but it looked like a lowercase r <laughs> so i was very confused but i was like no no it has to be a t because where the word kept appearing in sentences i mean it was an article it wasn't it wasn't just a randomly misspelled word it, yeah it was a t for in a word so it's made me appreciate textbooks a lot more because we don't have to deal with that. We can open it, we can read it just fine. There's right. no problems. But one of the things that I find the most useful about transcribing these letters the way I am is that once they're out there, we can use screen mirrors for them. We can listen to them mm-hmm. via audiobooks if what, possible. What are screen screen mirrors? So screen readers are screen for those readers okay, that yeah. are visually impaired. Mm-hmm. So it will read all the text on the screen for you. Oh, that's nice. And do you think you're going to continue doing this type of work in the future? Or like, what would you like to do, you know, after your bachelor's degree? I can't say this stuff for sure. Um, I plan on going into copy editing if possible after graduation, but research isn't off the table mm-hmm. entirely. Yeah. What's, uh, what yeah. kind of copy editing would you like to do? Um, right now I work in a newsroom. Mm-hmm. So in a newsroom would be a very similar environment. But I'm I'm down to copy edit wherever I'm needed. Which newsroom on Kent do you work for? The Kent Stater. The Kent Stater. I love the Kent Stater. I know a lot of a lot of writers for the Kent Stater as well. So shout out to the Kent Stater. Now, what'd you come into college studying? Um, I came in as a chemistry major, actually. That's a big change. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that a lot, but it actually helped me get out a lot of my STEM core mm-hmm. that was required for my English degree anyways. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't too bad of a jump. But yeah, I tell people that and they're like, whoa. And I'm like... Oh, yeah, maybe I when you hear it, but um, I've always had really strong writing and reading skills. Mm-hmm. So for me, it wasn't too much of an idea jump. Yeah. Now, why did you make that change? I just felt dispassionate after a while. Yeah. It wasn't the same looking at the stuff anymore. And I just felt disheartened. And I kept comparing myself to colleagues a bit too much. And ultimately, I just, it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue. So... Then I looked into other things I could do, and since I already had the strong writing and reading background, 
figured why not try English and yeah. here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you made a good decision because you're very knowledgeable about what you're talking about. And I went through kind of like the similar situation because I went in as a, a pre-medical student, which is, you know, basically like a chemistry major. And I was I was comparing myself to colleagues as well. And I was working, but I was I was nowhere near the level that they were at. Right. And then I realized what, you know, my, my skill set was, was, you know, looking at things bigger picture rather than smaller. So like I was a public health pre-medical major. And so it kind of gave me those, those two perspectives. You know, I would work in the lab with chemistry and, you know, look at the smallest of the small, but then also look at the broader aspect of health as a whole. And I know I was top of my class and at the top of conversations when it came to public health topics and then analyzing things on a, on a broader scope, but I was struggling to be average in the lab. So that's why I decided to make the switch and then do research more towards public health and economics because, you know, that's more of my skill set. Especially with, with this work, there is nobody to compare yourself to. I'm the only one working on this for my mentor. Mm-hmm. So I have to set all the standards. They talk to me about the standards and ethics of this line of work, but it really is me that has to keep myself in line and up to those standards. Yeah. Now, how long have you been working on this project for? Since May, I believe. Since May? Yeah. And you said how many notes of pages did you have to go through? Well over 100. And there might be more on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Are you all through those 100 right now? Yes, but I'm still going to have to do more look-throughs. Yeah. They're never ending. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be an intimidating process. Yes, especially when you've read the same document like 10 times. It's like, is there anything new? But Sometimes your eye just needs that next look to catch it. Mm-hmm. When I got done with the first look through for all hundreds of yeah. letters, <laughs> um, I remember I told my mentor and I was like, all right, it's it's done. No more could be done, right? And they were like, oh, well, I've seen some of my spellings. And I think to myself, that's weird. I, I go line by line. And I even double checked after I first transcribed them all. I was like, there's no way an error is getting through my eye vision. No. But come to find out, there were a few British English spellings in there mm-hmm. that I, seeing the original document, knew to be correct. But to an American reader, that's going to look wrong that I didn't know how to spell a basic vocabulary word when that wasn't the case. Yeah. So what I had to go in and do was put a footnote after the word, correct it to the American spelling, and then put the footnote at the bottom that says... Here's how the word was originally spelled in the document. Mm-hmm. Now, how many times do you think you had to do that, you know, going through the papers? Maybe 20 or so. 20 so or far. so. That's not too bad. No, no, not too bad. And that and that would also include um, specifying, for example, there were times when words were stricken out by hand. Yeah. So that wasn't, you know, them or anyone. That was the original writer who struck it out. Or I've had times where there's been a letter missing out of a word. So it's mm-hmm. okay. Let's put a footnote. Let's explain it. There there was one time where there were a lot of notes in the margin. So it's okay. I'll try to fit that onto the document as best as I can. And now let me explain to you that, yes, I know how to type in straight lines <laughs> and make it make sense. But they wrote in the margins and mm-hmm. on a piece of paper that's going to look normal to you. But when I put it into a Google Doc, it probably won't. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, it probably won't look as nice. But that's what's on the letter. Mm-hmm. And that's what's important is making sure that people get the most original document to view as possible. Right. And I've come to realize that some of the most intelligent people have some of the sloppiest handwriting. I think there's actually a study that was done that's saying that unorganized people 
are more intelligent. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but I remember reading that somewhere. I don't have the source, so don't quote me on it. But I like to believe that because I'm very unorganized as well. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And for anyone out there listening that wants sort of a visual of what I work on a bit, Harvard does have a few of Anna Freud's documents available for public viewing mm-hmm. online if you search it up. So you can you can sort of see what I work with on a day to day basis. Yeah. But um, they just have the original documents on there, but but there's no footnotes and it hasn't been typed out. So you they do have a few of the handwritten ones where you can see her handwriting. Mm-hmm. If you would like to get a better idea of what I have to look at. Yeah. <laughs> what would you just like Google? I typed in Harvard Anna Freud the other day and they came up. Um, I was given a direct link at first, but you would be able to find them that way. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm going to look into that after the episode and I'm not going to analyze them, but I Please think, don't. yeah, <laughs> I think it's just cool to look at them because it's like a, it's a, it's a big piece of history, not, not only for research in general, but everyone. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I've learned about more places, um, in Europe and in the States mm-hmm. <laughs> than I, than I anticipated. I've run across like slang words and words that haven't been used a while in English in these letters. Yeah. How how is doing research in general helped you just as a person? Do you think? I look at things more carefully and piece by piece, especially with a process like this. At first, there were names that I would glance over and think, "Oh, that's not too important," or places. But when you piece it together um, within that framework of somebody's life, and you realize, "Oh, that place today might look way different than it did when she visited it," or yeah anything like that it really makes you stop and think how you're writing yourself and how others around you are writing today mm-hmm. and how we write things is obviously different with texting you know we're gonna use abbreviations we're gonna all that stuff but even even our text might be worth looking into in the future yeah and I, I think I think there there is certain research going on in like terms of online communication right now yeah, they, they, it makes they, me rethink and double check my texts before I send them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you never know. They might, they you, might be looked at in 100 years. But, I mean, Anna, Anna Freud didn't know her documents were going to be looked at in, right. in um, you know, 100 years. And, and there's also books of Sigmund Freud's letters um, as well out there. You know, they, mm-hmm. they wrote those letters to the recipients. They weren't expecting the whole world to be able to view them at any time. And here they are. And it's crazy to think that we might be used in a study, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, generations from now without us even knowing. Yeah, it's possible for sure. Ashley, if you had one more thing to share with the world, what would it be? Read more, learn more. Mm-hmm. We have a lot more resources at our disposal in this century than ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure back in the day, Anna Freud wanted to look up you know, maybe a, a person's name or something, but to do that, she'd have to maybe write a letter to a friend that maybe knew them to get, like, the name and the address or whatnot, and we can just Google it. There's online courses for free. Yeah. There's books online for free. I read books through my library card, through an online service on my laptop. Even even search up Ken Ohio. See what you find. You're going to learn something new. It. It might be very something very arbitrary, something that happened like a decade ago, but you've learned something new about Kent. And I'm always learning something new about Kent. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't grow up in Kent, but through living here, obviously I've experienced Kent. Yeah. And there's resources here where I can learn about the history of Kent. The amount of information we have at our fingertips is insane. 
it's ridiculous and and i love looking at cat videos don't get me wrong (laughs) but maybe once in a while just take the time to maybe learn more about something that you're passionate about Mm -hmm. or if you hear someone talk about a random topic and it and it catches your ear look it up yeah see what it's about you never know where it'll take you you might read more on it you might choose to minor in something Mm -hmm. you you never know like where it's going to take you yeah, it's so important to have this uh, a hunger to learn more and to, you know, improve yourself. And if you stay consistent with it, and like they say, you know, you should you should learn something new every day, you'll be amazed and like how much you will grow. Especially because it breaks you out of the mold of staying in your bubble. Right. Especially with college classes, of course, you're going to be studying whatever your disciplinary is, but look up something new, mm-hmm. you know, learn something outside of it. You never know. You might find an area where it crosses over into your discipline too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so unexpected. Like I said, I came in, you know, as a public health major and then I always had an interest in, you know, you know, personal finances and stuff like that. Decided to look more into economics just for fun and just, you know, to help me personally with me, you know, managing my money. And I never, it never, it never came to me how, you know, economics relates to public health. But, like, it, it really does because every single policy also has to go through processes of considering money as well. Yeah, and especially with these letters, it's taught me that we have these documents and we put so much weight on them, but normal people wrote them too. Who's to say there isn't some lies in there? Mm-hmm. Or a typo because they were rushing that day yeah we don't know but they do give us a glimpse into history that is very intimate it's not a public speech that was prepared or anything they just wrote Mm -hmm. wrote what was on their mind and that was it i know like we said earlier it's crazy to think that probably generations from now what we're writing on our minds on the phone might be taken into consideration yeah it definitely it definitely can be and also social media posts that's what i think about a lot too um i used to have a journal (laughs) i have not written in it in like two years (laughs) but um stuff like that too even even the notebooks we take notes in for classes Mm -hmm. you know yeah i see the information but Oh, this doodle catches my eye on the margin. What? What's this about? What were What were they doodling about? <laughs> For me, it's always because I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. I I usually have a doodle notebook during the podcast, and and I'll do like all types. I I write maybe down three notes, but then the rest of the page is filled with it's filled with drawings and stuff. And I I feel if they ever get a a hold of that notebook, they're gonna have like the hardest time deciphering what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and. If they take this audio file into consideration while studying my notes, I'm letting you know right now, future researchers, that it has no meaning at all. It was just <laughs> just for fun. At least there's multiple sources, right? You, mm-hmm. you have your podcast and your notes. And for other people, too, you know, we have those different facets of our life that show others how we communicate, what our priorities are. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's social media. But, of course, how we interact with our family is a lot different than how we interact with our friends. And that's how it was for Anna Freud as, you know, an up-and-coming psychoanalyst. <laughs> um, yeah, she had to move to England, and she did some of her work there. But she she gave speeches here in the States and visited multiple times, and that was one facet. And she was completely different with her most close colleagues. And you can see her in another light with her 
published writings yeah. as well. They're all different facets of the same person. And so having another one to add and see someone in a new light is amazing. And the fact that we even have these after all these decades is amazing. Anything could have happened to them. They easily could have been burned. Right. Or I know a lot of stuff did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we have these, we need to take advantage of it. It might not be for everybody, but whenever the world needs it, it's going to be here. Whether it's in the digital file still, whether it gets turned into a publication, they're here. Yeah. And however they can get used is a win. Right. In my book. You know, if you're listening to it as an audiobook and you fall asleep to it, someone with sleep problems, <laughs> I consider that a win. Yeah. If you need it for a presentation that you're giving on psychoanalysis and you learn something new and you decide to look into psychoanalysis more and decide to go to training for it, that's a win. Right. Yeah. All good ways to use information to me. Mm-hmm. You know, Ashley, you are doing fantastic work right now. I'm seriously so excited to see you know, what you're going to do in the future. And I'm hyped to listen to your three-minute thesis presentation that we, we both have coming up in October. <laughs> I definitely want you to come on here again because I feel like we could talk forever. But just separate it into different episodes. Yeah, it, yeah. it's a lot of ground to cover. With Anna Freud herself... Um, we're also trying to see the connection she has here with Cleveland and the Northeast Ohio area as she did have a colleague that moved here, um, and lived in Cleveland, Ohio. So we're sort of trying to see if we can establish that connection a bit more between, okay, what did she influence over here and how did that spread out to maybe some of the practices we see in Northeast Ohio psychoanalysis work today? Right. I, I, I didn't realize her, like her work impacted this area so much specifically and i i didn't either it's not something that's talked about a lot i think because we we tend to focus on their work and not Mm -hmm. make like not as much of a personal view on it yeah um because she she was born in vienna and then once world war ii was on the rise moved to london Mm -hmm. um to do some of her work as well but yeah, that's what we're we're trying we're hoping to find is how can we use some of her work and practices maybe today to help children that were in a similar a similar isolation and displacement like those after or during World War II. Yeah. And seeing her impact on Northeast Ohio psychoanalysis today. But it, it's a very hard thing because psychoanalysis is still going on. It's still happening. <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. of people think it, it has gone to the wayside, but it is still here it's still present there are still training psychoanalysts and practicing psychoanalysts for anybody out there that wants to learn more about that i would recommend on and off the couch on and off the couch yes it was and still is a podcast that is being produced where psychoanalysts today or people with experience in psychoanalysis are getting interviewed and talking about how they're using it whether it is in their office for practice or if it's outside somewhere else if it's in their community and using those ideas and principles to help others Mm -hmm. it truly is a a social field it relies on just being human having that communication yeah on and off the couch is that on spotify um they have an official website and that's where i listened to it so all right i'm definitely gonna check it out well Ashley, like I said, it's great having you on. You are definitely welcome back anytime. I, I will fit you in any any week that you want, any day of the week that you want to. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely come back. Mm-hmm. Yes. And 
best of luck to us on our three-minute thesis presentations. Yes, and uh, <laughs> to all listeners it. out there that also have to worry about it. Because, <laughs> yeah, we need it. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Thank well, you for having me, John. Anytime. Again, this is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to inspire. Peace out. <laughs>